0: I invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel, no matter where you are, if you would like to, as we read from John chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, and then we jump down to verses 19 through 28. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all may believe through him. He himself was not the light. But he came to testify to the light. This is the testimony given by John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elisha? And he said, I am not. Are you a prophet? He answered, No. why then are you baptizing if you are neither the Messiah nor Elijah nor a prophet? And John answered, I baptize with water. Among you stands one whom you do not know, the one who is coming after me. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. This took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Let us hear where the Holy Spirit leads us on this day. I have to start with a confession, and that is that... Pastor Mark was going to do the sermon today, but due to the four to five inches of snow (laughs) outside, he wasn't able to make it here this morning. So I just wanted to give credit that most of the words that I say were compiled by him, and I just added a few of my favorite things from my sermon that I wrote for Living Water this morning. So I want to start with John the Baptizer. He lived in a time and a place of great unrest. He and the rest of Israel were a small and somewhat insignificant part of the world that had been conquered by Rome and were occupied by legions of Roman soldiers. A legion is 144,000. I just want you to hear how big that number is. Israel, like all portions of the Roman Empire, were forced to live under Rome's thumb and were surrounded by daily signs of Roman oppression and heavy taxation. It was a time of great unrest in Israel, aggravated aggravated by the fact that factions of Israelite society and faith responded in different ways to this Roman occupation. We often imagine that it's only in recent years or even recent days that there's been so much division and tension in the society. But the situation in which John the Baptizer was very similar to our own regard. There were Sadducees who were old hardline Jewish aristocrats who held tightly to tradition, and they looked down on other groups like the Pharisees, who they believed were making too many accommodations to the political pressure of the day. There were also the Zealots, a smaller but a militant force that was used to do whatever they could to resist the Romans. We've also learned in recent years of an even smaller group called the Essenes, who were a strict monastic community focused on purity and discipline. The group that we hear the most about in the scriptures is the Pharisees. They exercised the greatest authority in religious community, and they tried to walk a fine line between being true to the Jewish faith and life, but without doing anything to upset or antagonize the Romans. They were fully aware, if the unrest got out of hand in any way, that it could result and Rome clamping down on them even more harshly. The Pharisees didn't want the Romans there any more than anyone else did, but they tried to be pragmatic in their opposition and just keep a lid on any tension that might flare up. They held most of the positions of power in the religious community, so they saw it as their responsibility to maintain the status quo at all cost. With that in mind, it's clear why the Pharisees one day sent these representatives to talk to John the Baptist, to ask him these questions. You see, John was developing quite a following among the people, and the Pharisees were worried that he might stir up trouble. It's an understandable response from what we know about John the Baptist. He presents as someone who's a bit of a rebel. When someone new comes along, we often react the same way. We want to see for ourselves who this person is and what they're up to. The Pharisees wanted to know if John was someone they needed to be worried about. They asked John if he was the Messiah, and he said he was not. Then they asked him, are you Elijah? Are you a prophet? And he said, no, I am not. They were unable to pin him down. And so they told them they have to report back to those who had sinned. And so they demanded, give us an answer. He told them that he was not the one that they needed to be worried about, that he was preparing the way for the one who was really going to shake things up. That might have calmed some of the Pharisees at the moment, but it also alerted them to the fact that there was someone else coming that they really needed to watch out for. Now, if the Pharisees were interested in keeping an eye out for someone God might be doing, using to do a new thing, that's one thing. But the Pharisees' main interest was making sure that no one did anything new that no one came along who would shake things up and possibly provoke the Romans into a vigorous clampdown on them. We often talk about the Pharisees as evil people who opposed Jesus and his followers at every turn. We often make them sort of cartoonish enemies who had nothing but bad intentions at heart. But if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit That most of us have a lot in common with the Pharisees. We know that things in our lives may not be perfect, but many of us are greatly concerned to maintain the status quo at all cost. Many of us keep an eye out for anyone who might bring unwanted change in our lives or in our community So often we blame people who are older for resisting change, but 20 years of youth ministry taught me that kids hate change as much as adults do. We are quick to turn to those voices and opinions that we always lean on and ask them to check out this person or this group that we have in mind, ask them one way or another, give us an answer, tell us what we are to think. Just as there were differences and disagreements between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Zealots and the Essenes, there are differences and disagreements today between Catholics and Protestants, Hindus and Sikhs, religious and atheist. There are differences of opinion about things like Black Lives Matter, same-sex marriage, women in leadership, abortion, and on and on and on. And often, our main concern is to simply demand, give us an answer so we know which box to put you in, friend or foe. We sometimes try to chart some kind of middle path. We imagine there are good people on both sides of every disagreement, and I'm not sure that I agree. Some things are just not in step with the teaching Christian teaching, some things do not line up with the heart of Jesus. We can disagree about what those things are, but that's the question we're supposed to be asking. Is this in keeping with our calling as followers of Christ? Instead of trying to keep everything nailed down as it is, demanding of others that they give us an answer so we don't have to change our thinking about anything... We are supposed to be those people who are so convinced of God's presence and power that we are always on the lookout for what God is doing next. It's not a question of getting God to give us an answer about what he's up to in the world or in our lives. It's a question of God coming to us, especially in this Advent season and demanding of us Give me an answer about what you intend to do with the life that I've given you. When we lit the third candle of our Advent wreath this morning, we read a passage from Isaiah 61 that describes well what God is up to in the world. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Today in Advent, we celebrate this emphasis on joy. This scripture for joy is the same scripture that Jesus read in the temple when he proclaimed that he was the Messiah. Jesus was born into a world that was not joyful. His family didn't travel to Bethlehem because they wanted to. They were there because of the occupying forces in their country required them to go. They didn't return home after he was born because they had to flee to safety and be refugees for two years. This is not an idyllic setting of warm and fuzzy Christmas memories that we so often attribute with the holiday. Sometimes we forget the people we are descended from are a people who've been persecuted, enslaved, and occupied Sometimes in our Christian traditions, we ignore that the people found joy in spite of their circumstances. Somehow, they had the faith and the hope in the midst of uncertainty and chaos that God was still working on their behalf. I want to point out just a few things further about Isaiah 61. It begins with, Proclaiming the anointed one is bringing good news, but it is who the good news is for that is where the surprise is. The good news is for the oppressed, it's for the brokenhearted, and it's for the captive prisoner. Wait, what? The good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is coming for who? The oppressed broken, the prisoner. Most years, American Christians don't fall into many of these categories, or we simply forget about those who do because they're not on our radar. Rarely do we even consider the oppressed or the captive. Sometimes we do care about the brokenhearted, and you see that during the holidays, But the next section of Isaiah 61 says that this proclamation is for the day of vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn. Friends, in the last week, we hit 3,000 people a day who are dying in our country. 3,000! That is more than all of the people that died on September 11th, each day. This is a season of mourning in our world and in our country. And when God asks, comes to us in this Advent season of preparation and demands from us an answer about what are our intentions, Isaiah's proclamation about our answer is a pretty good place to start. Amen.